One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Broncos at Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, November 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 49 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Dak Prescott is expected to return, while Michael Gallup is currently expected to miss his seventh straight game with a calf strain. Noah Fant popped on the COVID list with a positive test on Tuesday and will need to return two negative tests based at least 24 hours apart in order to play. From what we've seen this season via the league's COVID protocols, consider him closer to doubtful at this time. The Broncos lead the league in situation-neutral pass rates over the previous four weeks and an extreme pace-up matchup here. Denver has allowed the second-fewest points per game this season, but hold up a minute. Check who they've played thus far. We'll do this below. How Denver will try to win. The Broncos would like to slow the game down, 29th-ranked situation-neutral pace of play over the first half of the season, but contrary to popular belief, they are more than capable and more than willing to turn things heavily towards the air if forced to do so. Their situation-neutral pass rates over the full season sit at 12th-ranked 62%, but their situation-neutral pass rate since Week 4 leads the league at 68%. During that time, they have trailed for the majority of the game against Baltimore, trailed for most of the game against Pittsburgh, trailed for most of the game against Las Vegas, trailed for most of the game against the Browns, scored twice in the second half to lose 17-14, and escaped with a narrow 17-10 win over Washington. Although their pace of play when trailing by seven or more points ranks 21st in the league at 27.55 seconds per play, it marks an over six-second increase in pace from their situation-neutral value of 33.70 seconds per play. What does this all mean? Well, it means the Broncos can and will open things up if forced to do so. Against the Cowboys, the likeliest scenario leads to a situation where they should be forced to do so. The backfield situation continues to be a 60-40 split in snap rate between Melvin Gordon III and rookie Javante Williams. That said, each holds exactly 49 running back opportunities over the previous four games, with both typically landing in the 8-13 opportunity range. Basically, an already low-volume run game is split almost evenly, leaving only a thin chance at a GPP-worthy score for either. The matchup on the ground yields a below-average 4.22 net adjusted line yards metric, which I highlighted here not as a vote of confidence for this run game, but as a reminder of the likeliest plan of attack for the Broncos against a pass-funnel Cowboys defense. The passing game is likely to be missing one of its key contributors after Noah Fant popped on the COVID list on Tuesday. While possible he makes it back in time for Sunday, he will need to provide two negative tests spaced at least 24 hours apart in order to play this weekend. This leaves the primary pass-catching duties to Cortland Sutton, Tim Patrick, Jerry Judy, and backup tight end Albert Okuebunam, don't ask me to say that again, should Fant miss. Sutton and Patrick should be considered near every down wide receivers, and Judy should see snaps close to 70%. Denver has played from 11 personnel at a 61% clip thus far, which is likely to see a slight uptick with the return of Judy. Judy's heavy slot snap rate means he should largely avoid standout corner Trayvon Diggs, assuming he plays, forced from last week's contest in the fourth with an ankle injury, already practiced in full on Wednesday. Diggs has gained widespread media attention for his seven interceptions on the season, but this dude is quickly becoming one of the premier lockdown corners in the NFL. After his string of six consecutive games with an interception, he shut down Justin Jefferson in Week 8. He has allowed only 19 of 42 passes thrown into his primary coverage to be completed, with the aforementioned seven interceptions to only two touchdowns allowed. This kid is hashtag good. 
Finally, Albert O should step into the near every down snap rate left behind with the likely absence of Noah Fant. How Dallas will try to win. Dallas has continued their altered approach over the previous four weeks of play. With a fast pace, fifth fastest situation neutral pace of play, and third fastest with the score within six points. And elevated rush rates now being their new calling card. 54% previous four games, 55% on the season. After the injury to Michael Gallup, we've seen this team transition to a heavy 12 personnel base offense, running the third highest rate of 12 in the league behind only Atlanta and Miami. With this in mind, the injury status of Blake Jarwin becomes highly pertinent to how we think this team approaches this game. Keep an eye on his status as the week progresses, but he missed practice on Wednesday with a hip injury. His absence would likely open up additional offensive snaps for Cedric Wilson and Noah Brown. The backfield split between Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard remains heavily weighted in Zeke's favor, who has played 70% or more of the offensive snaps in every game but one this season. Zeke has seen between 21 and 26 running back opportunities in each of the last four games played, compared to between 8 and 18 opportunities for Pollard over that same time. This gives us a good idea of the top end on Zeke's expected workload here, with most game scenarios leading to a hard cap on his opportunities due to the presence of Pollard. The matchup yields an elite 4.87 net adjusted line yards metric on the backs of the top-rated run blocking unit in the league. Tyron Smith, one of the league's top-rated tackles, appears likely to miss this contest. A large part of the moderate 4.23 yards allowed per rush to opposing running backs from this Denver defense is simply due to the level of competition they have faced this season. Their adjusted line yards allowed metric is a below average 4.56. Through the air, Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb should be considered co-wide receiver ones on this offense, with Cedric Wilson the acting wide receiver three, typical snap rates between 50 and 60%, and Noah Brown handling primarily spread package duties. Tight end Dalton Schultz has been operating a notch below every down duties, while Blake Jarwin has typically seen 40 to 55% of the offensive snaps. Should Jarwin miss here, we could see an increased 11 personnel, or we could see Jeremy Sprinkle step into Jarwin's workload with no clear indication either way. To me, the answer likely lies somewhere in the middle, with increased 11 personnel and sprinkle in 12 packages. The matchup against Denver's zone-heavy, prevent defense tilts expected production to the short-intermediate area of the field, particularly considering the high level of play of the safeties to this point. Cornerbacks Bryce Callahan and Ronald Darby have been absolutely torched this season. Darby has been targeted 26 times in just four games played, allowing a 65.4% completion rate and 256 yards in his primary coverage. It is clear the path of least resistance is away from standout rookie Patrick Sertan II, which tilts expected volume slightly in favor of C.D. Lamb and Cedric Wilson. Likeliest game flow. It is likeliest we see the Cowboys dictate the pace, flow, and game environment overall here against a Bronco team that has continually started games slowly this season on offense, and assuming Dak Prescott returns to the lineup. The main thing that could derail this likeliest game flow would be the Denver defense buckling down in the red zone, as they've done all season, having surrendered the second fewest points per game at only 17.1 and allowing a touchdown on only 50% of opposing red zone trips. Although less likely against a Dallas team with Dak back at the helm, this would throw enough of a wrench in the game environment as a whole so it bears mention here. That said, when we look at who the Broncos have played and how many points they've allowed to those opponents, we start to get a clearer sense of just how good, or not as good, this defense really is. They started the season allowing only 13 points to the Giants, then 13 points to the Jaguars, then a shutout against the Jets, before allowing 23, 27, and 34 points to the Ravens, Steelers, and Raiders, before then playing the slow-paced Browns, 17, and a reeling Washington team, 
10. The Broncos also lost linebacker Von Miller to the Rams via trade this week. All of that is to say this defense can be broken against solid offenses, which is very much the case here against the Cowboys. When all is said and done, it is likeliest we see the Cowboys hit first and hit hard, forcing the Broncos into the all-too-familiar catch-up mode, increasing their aerial aggression along the way. Falcons at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, November 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 42. Game Overview by Hilo. Jameis Winston is done for the year after suffering a torn ACL. Michael Thomas is done for the year after suffering a setback with his surgically repaired ankle. Taysom Hill should return this week and should be the starting quarterback for the Saints for the remainder of the season. Calvin Ridley's absence means most Atlanta players are relegated to largely rotational pieces in this offense. Not a ton to love here, and we'll explain why in the DFS Plus section. We'll also take a moment to do some higher-level teaching surrounding range of outcomes projections. How Atlanta will try to win. The biggest story out of Camp Atlanta is the absence of Calvin Ridley for an unspecified amount of time, who is away from the team to address his mental health. Again, kudos to him for taking the time to take care of himself. That is likely to have the biggest impact on the expected snap rates of Corderell Patterson and Tajay Sharp moving forward. Atlanta held a situation-neutral pass rate of 61% in Week 5 and Week 8, the two weeks Calvin Ridley has missed this season, compared to their season-long value of 63%. This indicates a coaching staff that has been slow to adjust to the offensive personnel on hand, further highlighted by the sporadic snap rates for one of their most dynamic playmakers in Corderell Patterson. That said, both Patterson and Mike Davis have played over 60% of the offensive snaps in each of the past three games, two of which Ridley missed. I would expect that trend to continue moving forward. Interestingly enough, both Mike Davis and Corderell Patterson have scored double-digit fantasy points in all but one game this season, with only Patterson showing any semblance of a ceiling. Even then, he has only two games above 20 fantasy points, 23.9 and 34.6. Both running backs should see 60% or more of the offensive snaps here, but the matchup is an extremely difficult one against a team allowing the third-fewest fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. The pure rushing matchup is also a difficult one, yielding a well-below-average 3.65 net-adjusted line yards metric. Overall, expect this backfield, one that has derived a large portion of its value from efficiency and touchdown this season, to struggle here. The heavy emphasis on 21 and 12 personnel alignments from the Falcons over the previous three games, a laughable 15% of their offensive snaps over that time have been from 11 personnel, means fewer snaps per week for the three-man rotation of Russell Gage, Tajay Sharp, and Olamide Zacchaeus. Gage and Sharp led wide receivers in snap rate last week at 68% each, with Olamide checking in at 40%. Expect Kyle Pitts to land in the 70-80% snap rate range moving forward, with fellow tight end Hayden Hurst in the 55-65% range. As we've seen throughout the season, the weekly floor of every pass catcher remains fairly low, with Kyle Pitts and Corderell Patterson holding the best chances at ceiling. How New Orleans will try to win Sean Payton faces his toughest test of the season, not from an opponent perspective, but from a game-planning perspective, as a lot changes with this offense with the shift from Jameis Winston to Taysom Hill. Regardless of the quarterback shift, this is still a team that is sitting at a 5-2 and two record and only a half game behind the Bucks for first place in the NFC South on the back of their defense. This is the biggest realization that we must come to in order to dissect how this team moves forward. The Saints have allowed the fourth fewest points per game, 18.3, third lowest drive success rate against, 67.5, fifth lowest yards per drive, 31.14, and have generated the third best turnover margin in the league. From an offensive perspective, expect the Saints to continue to emphasize the run, 
highest situation neutral rush rate in the league at 52%, with some of those rush attempts coming through Taysom Hill. The offense's moderate drive success rate, 16th ranked 72.3%, is likely to take a slight step back as they transition to Taysom at quarterback, which is likeliest to lead to some ugly games over the coming few weeks. Mark Ingram joined the Saints prior to week 8, and he immediately stepped into a normal change of pace workload. 29% of the offensive snaps, 6 carries, and 2 targets. Of note, Alvin Kamara saw his normal 80-90% snap rate dip to 67% in week 8, which should serve as a note of caution with respect to his workload moving forward. Running back wide receiver hybrid Ty Montgomery continues to see meaningful snaps both out of the backfield, out of the slot, and split out wide, but I'd expect his role to shift to more of a traditional wide receiver role following the addition of Ingram. After seeing 24-31 to 31 running back opportunities in every game outside of the hangover trouncing the Saints took against the Panthers following their Week 1 dismantling of the Packers, Kamara saw 23 running back opportunities on the decreased snap rate. The big picture here is Kamara is still Kamara, and he should remain the focal point of the offense moving forward. The matchup on the ground yields a slightly above average 4.345 net adjusted line yards metric. The snap rates amongst the secondary pass catchers in this offense, remember, Alvin Kamara should be treated as the sole primary pass catcher in a low-volume offense, have been somewhat all over the place. Expect Marquez Callaway and Traquan Smith to operate as the starting wide receivers, with Deontay Johnson and the aforementioned Montgomery operating as the package receivers, and with Kevin White on hand to spell Callaway and Smith should they need a breather. Finally, Adam Troutman is playing heavy snaps, 86% or more in three consecutive games, but has seen more than three targets only twice all year, six targets in week one and week eight. Considering the fact that the Saints average only 27.7 pass attempts per game this year and are now shifting their offense to one built around Taysom Hill, there shouldn't be much volume to go around amongst the secondary and tertiary pass catchers. Likeliest game flow. The flow of this game is likeliest to be dictated by the defense of the Saints against the seemingly one-dimensional opponent. The absence of Calvin Ridley allows opposing teams to key in on rookie tight end Kyle Pitts to a point where the offense as a whole suffers greatly. The slow pace of the New Orleans offense, 29th ranked first half pace of play and 31st ranked second half pace of play, means we should expect the Falcons to end this game below their season average of 64.4 offensive plays per game, even with them likely in catch-up mode. Look for the Saints to control the game in the trenches on both sides of the ball and lean on the run game through Kamara, Taysom Hill, and Ingram. Patriots at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, November 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. This game sets up as a defensive struggle that will rely significantly on which team wins the turnover battle. While both teams have had some ugly moments this year, both are still quietly in the thick of the playoff battle, and this is an important, winnable game that they will not want to let slip away. This will likely be a tightly contested game. Both teams have been a part of one-score games in four of their last five contests. The statuses of Sam Darnold and Christian McCaffrey will have a huge impact on the projection of this game. How New England will try to win. For a couple of decades now, we have seen Bill Belichick's philosophy very clearly. Attack his opponent's weaknesses on defense and make them beat you in ways they don't want to on offense. Given that approach, we can get a clear picture of what the Patriots will try to do against the Panthers. Run the ball and stop the run. Carolina is 6th in the league in pass defense DVOA and 2nd in yards per pass attempt allowed while raking middle of the pack against the run. On the other side of the ball, Belichick knows all too well how mistake-prone Sam Darnold can be and he will likely load the box to cut off the run and force Darnold to overcome the ghosts of Belichick past. 
remember the infamous Ghosts game that has followed Darnold for years was against the Patriots. Darnold is currently in the concussion protocol and also battling a shoulder injury. If he were unable to play, that would mean P.J. Walker would start at QB. While Walker provides some additional dual threat ability, it would likely not do anything to change the Patriots' approach as they will also force him to prove it and make them pay for loading the box. I would also expect a heavy blitz rate on passing downs from New England. That whole dynamic on the other side of the ball will play a huge role in the Patriots' offensive approach. They are not going to force the ball down the field against a good pass defense and risk turnovers that let the Panthers off the hook. The Patriots will pound the run and control the ball. Their only objective is to get out of here with a win. They don't care if it's pretty. Belichick will stay conservative offensively as long as needed in a game of chicken with the Panthers' QB. See what happens first. They can consistently move the ball or they make a couple of costly turnovers. How Carolina will try to win. Matt Rule has made comments in consecutive weeks that point to a conservative, old-school approach. A couple of weeks ago, he talked about how we haven't been committed enough to running the ball, and this week said, the team has to come to grips that it's a defensive team. He isn't wrong, as their offense has not shown an ability to move the ball against better defenses, and they have a lot of defensive talent and a good scheme. As I discussed in my Process Points article this week in the Reflection Scroll, we are at a point in the year where things like this will happen and teams will change from what we've known them to be. While Carolina has been respectable in pace and pass rate statistics to this point, we should expect those numbers to regress towards the bottom third of the league in the coming weeks. In this matchup with a gritty Patriots team, Rule and company will be put to the test if they will stick to their word. The bottom line is that it appears clear they do trust their defense and they don't trust their quarterbacks. The manner that they will try to win is likely to be the same as the Patriots. Run the ball, avoid turnovers, control the clock, hope the other team makes mistakes. Usually, I like to throw more statistics into these breakdowns, but the changing nature of the Panthers' approach combined with the setup of this game environment makes it so the narratives and dynamics of the game are much more easily understood through a conceptual lens than from a statistical analysis. Likeliest Game Flow This game has the lowest total, 41 on the slate, and rightfully so. Both teams are likely to take a run-and-defend approach to this game, and both defenses are good enough to keep the other team from scoring a lot of early points. The only scenario that I can see that would turn up the tempo here would be if Carolina surprises and is able to bust some big plays in the passing game early, as New England will basically be daring them to try. In that scenario, the Panthers would jump out to a lead and force New England out of its shell. However, even then, it is unlikely they would build such a lead where the game environment would truly get out of hand. For instance, the Patriots are unlikely to abandon their plan if they were down something like 17-7 to at halftime. Christian McCaffrey seems like he's probably still a week away, but if he were active and resumed his normal role, that is one thing that can change the dynamic of everything as the Patriots linebackers would really struggle to contain him in space. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Vikings at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, November 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49.5. Game Overview by Hilo. One of the lighter injury concern games meaning we have a more clear idea of how each team will approach it from both sides. Although the path to this game truly blowing up doesn't leave many outs, it is still the likeliest scenario for how the game should play out. This presents an interesting scenario where I wouldn't feel comfortable with an always-one Viking rule 
but would instead spread exposure to account for the Vikings completely failing or the game environment overwhelming. That gets even more tricky to digest when we consider the fact that the Ravens are one of the more spread offenses in the league. Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson has more games of double-digit rush attempts than he does of games with single-digit carries. He also has not scored a rushing touchdown since he scored two in Week 2. Expect the Ravens to come out looking sharp following their Week 8 bye. How Minnesota will try to win. We pretty much know what we're going to get from this Vikings team. They rank middle of the pack in both situation-neutral rush and pass rates and situation-neutral pace of play. That said, they rank all the way up at 7th in overall pace of play primarily due to pretty consistently finding themselves in either negative game scripts or highly competitive games. That's part of the appeal of games involving Minnesota. They are typically highly competitive games. The startling six of seven games have been decided by one score or less. When looking at how the Vikings approach games, we typically see a balanced approach throughout as opposed to insane pass rates when trailing. The defense that has improved dramatically as the season has progressed has led to the Vikings offense ranking 5th in the league in plays per game at 68.6. This, in turn, has led to increased volume for the offense as a whole and a quarterback in Kirk Cousins who has yet to attempt fewer than 32 passes in a game this year. This backfield is dominated by Dalvin Cook for as long as he remains healthy. Dalvin has seen a 71% snap share or greater in all four of his fully healthy games this season translating to running back opportunity counts of 27, 25, 32, and 20. After seeing 16 targets in two and a half games, his four targets over the previous two weeks are a bit of a letdown, all things considered. Behind Dalvin, Alexander Madison typically handles a modest 10 to 20% snap rate and opportunity share whenever Dalvin is healthy. Fullback extraordinaire CJ Ham continues to play heavy snaps on this offense, largely devoid of playmakers outside of the big three playing 30% or more of the offensive snaps in five of seven games thus far. The matchup is a difficult one against Brandon Williams and this Ravens rush defense, yielding a paltry 3.615 net adjusted line yards metric. Continue to monitor the status of Brandon Williams, who missed Wednesday's practice with a shoulder injury. For how conservative quarterback Kirk Cousins is, he has absolutely smashed against the Blitz this season. Actionable information against a Ravens defense that plays man coverage and blitzes at some of the highest rates in the league. What this scheme has historically done is cut down on both ADOT against and opponent catch rate, but what we're seeing this season is a team cutting down on opponent completion rate, but allowing an absurd 12.3 yards per completion, which ranks second worst to only the Lions. On top of that, the Ravens allow an inflated average depth of target when targeted as a defender, 8.4. Although Justin Jefferson is the team's primary deep threat, 11.5 ADOT, he has largely struggled in his young career against tight man and press coverage, both of which he should expect to see a great deal of this week. Adam Thielen's modest 9.7 ADOT and 22.8% team target market share means he typically requires a spike in volume to provide GPP-worthy scores, which just might be the case here against the Ravens. KJ Osborne actually holds a lower ADOT than Thielen, all the way down at 7.9 yards and would require an immense boost to volume or a broken play to pay off. One of the most interesting pieces from this offense is tight end Tyler Conklin. Conklin holds a silly 4.4 ADOT and modest 13.17 target market share, but represents the path of least resistance for the Vikings this week. Averaging about 5.3 targets per game, he'll likely require extreme efficiency and a trip to the end zone to provide a GPP-worthy score at cost but the potential is there. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens have landed between 26 and 31 pass attempts in five of seven games, 
with the two outliers in that thrilling overtime come from behind victory against the Colts and a week four game against the Broncos in which they struggled to run the football. We know by now to expect elevated rush rates and a slow pace of play from these Ravens, which should hold true this week. Not much left to say about this Ravens offense that we all don't already know, other than the likely return to the lineup of Sammy Watkins, which should dent the expected snap rates of both Devin Duvernay and Rashad Bateman. The status of Latavius Murray is still up in the air, but we can't expect three of Murray, Devontae Freeman, Le'Veon Bell, and Tyson Williams to be active on game day and see meaningful reps. When we then consider that this team basically plays with four running backs on a weekly basis with the addition of Lamar Jackson's rushing workload, it leaves very few paths to GPP-worthy scores to emerge from any of the three weekly active running backs. Consider this. The team high for fantasy points from any one running back is 18.4, scored all the way back in week one when Tyson Williams shared the backfield with only the recently added Latavius Murray. The high outside of that week one game is 13.6 fantasy points. The matchup is almost irrelevant at that point, particularly when Lamar Jackson typically rushes for double-digit attempts on his own. The passing game has once again relied heavily on efficiency as opposed to volume this season. L. Jackson's tight range of typical pass volume, as discussed above, means the Ravens require outside influence to raise their weekly pass volume. This is most likely to come in the form of a game environment that pushes them to become more aggressive. But when we consider their opponent this week typically adapts to a similar outlook when it comes to aggression, rarely push the envelope on their own, it leaves very little outs for the game environment to take off. This means both Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews are likeliest to land in their standard range of targets of 7-9, to while the secondary options in the passing game take a significant hit should Sammy Watkins return to his standard 7-8 to looks, hit that tight range in every fully healthy game this year. Rashad Bateman, Devin DuVernay, and James Proche would be relegated to MME prayers in that case. Likeliest game flow. Due to the nature of this Vikings team, they very rarely become aggressive on their own, but are fully capable of playing games close once forced into aggression. This game environment overall revolves around almost entirely the Ravens' ability to score points and the Vikings' ability to return the favor. This leaves us with a fairly narrow path to the game environment truly erupting, but we have seen games involving these Vikings do just that at multiple points over the past season and a half. Put another way, We shouldn't expect the Vikings to come out firing from the first kick on their own, usually requiring an outside force to kickstart them into aggression. That nudge is likeliest to come in the form of the Ravens putting up points early. I wanted to go through the way, or ways in some cases, where the game environment could truly take off for some of these games this week in which the likeliest game flow doesn't really separate themselves from the other equally as likely occurrences. The decision to take this approach this week also has a lot to do with the state of the slate overall, where injuries, COVID listers, and other outside factors have had a great effect on the likeliest plans of attack, game flows, and game environments. The likeliest scenario for this one involves the Ravens controlling the pace, slow, while the Vikings are responsible for the flow and overall environment. Games like this typically play competitively throughout, which falls in line with what we've seen from the Vikings this year. Browns at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, November 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 47. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. Both of these teams play at a plodding pace, meaning this game will need the offenses to be very efficient in order to take off. There is a lot of uncertainty on both sides of the ball in how they will choose to attack and how successful they will be with those strategies. Cleveland's defense has been Jekyll and Hyde this season and has been extremely matchup sensitive in its performance. 
Cincinnati is a team that has evolved throughout the season and is still in the process of settling on an identity. How Cleveland will try to win. The Browns have what many teams aspire for, an offensive identity. They rely on their running game, which is ranked number one in DVOA and number one in yards per carry, to wear teams down and control the clock. Even without Kareem Hunt the last few weeks, Ernest Johnson has stepped in admirably and allowed Cleveland to maintain their favored approach of using multiple backs, which lets the Browns heavily rely on their backfield without running one player into the ground. The Browns also play at a plotting situation-neutral pace of 33.40 seconds per snap, 29th in the league. Their ability to run the ball, which keeps the clock moving, and take their time between plays makes for long drives that shorten games with fewer possessions. Through the air, Baker Mayfield is quietly second in the league in average intended air yards at 9.1 yards per attempt. Cleveland's offense leverages the success of their running game by using high amounts of play-action passing and taking deep to intermediate shots. You will often hear of teams using short passes as an extension of the run game, but Cleveland's offense is not designed like that. At least usually that's not the case. However, the Browns primarily have two players who have more explosive abilities that can be used effectively down the field. Odell Beckham Jr., OBJ, and Donovan Peoples-Jones, DPJ. OBJ has essentially been kicked off the team, and DPJ is nursing a groin injury that has kept him out of the last two games. After watching Mike White and the Jets dice up the Bengals by spreading them out and peppering them with short passes, perhaps the Browns look to employ a similar attack this week. It is a strategy that would make sense as they have good pass-catching tight ends, solid options out of the backfield, and their wide receiver room is made up of possession-style receivers. Also, the Browns will be without all-pro tackle Jack Conklin, which means they will likely have less success than usual running the ball. The lack of downfield threats for the Browns will make it more difficult to take shots down the field through play action, thereby forcing them to spread the field and stretch the defense horizontally through quick passes and misdirection. How Cincinnati will try to win Cincinnati's year-long stats don't necessarily tell the whole story of the team they currently are. The Bengals started the year relying on their running game and protecting their franchise QB, Joe Burrow, who was returning from an ACL injury. They have gradually picked up the pace with their passing, however, and have thrown at the fourth highest rate in the league over the last two weeks. Now they are entering a Week 9 matchup with the Browns' defense that provides some clear pass funnel features and whose performance has been very matchup dependent so far this season. What I mean by that is this. KC, Arizona, and Chargers versus Cleveland defense, 39 points per game. Houston, Chicago, Minnesota, and Pittsburgh versus the Cleveland defense, 12.6 points per game. The Browns' defense as a unit has some talent and can be very good. However, they have been torched by some of the better offenses in the league. This makes sense as a unit that relies on personnel outplaying their opponents will be able to overwhelm outmatched teams. Unfortunately, with their talent advantage neutralized, this appears to be a team that has a lot of schematic flaws and communication issues that well-coached teams can take advantage of. Cleveland ranks third in DVOA against the run while struggling to the tune of the number 25 ranking against the pass. The way things line up, Cincinnati is going to be incentivized to continue their recent increase in pass rate in this matchup. What we want to figure out is how successful they will be in taking to the air, which it appears depends on which group of from above you think they belong in. If we break those teams down by quarterback, this is what it looks like. Mahomes, Murray, and Herbert, 39 points per game. Tyrod, Fields, Cousins, Bridgewater, Roethlisberger, 12.6 points per game. In my opinion, Joe Burrow is clearly better at this point than every quarterback in the bottom group and is playing at a level recently that would put him at least very close to the top group. My lean is that the Bengals, with their talented receiving core and backfield, 
we'll be able to have a lot of offensive success and move the ball against the Browns team. Likeliest game flow. This is a big game for both teams, and they are both average to above average on both sides of the ball. However, it is also true that none of the four units, Cleveland D, Cleveland O, Cincinnati D, Cincinnati O, are juggernauts that will clearly dictate how this game plays out. These teams rank 29th and 30th in situation neutral pace, and both are also top 10 in the league in run rate. However, there are clear signs laid out above that would lead us to believe that at least one of those things, run rate, will change on one or both sides of the ball this week. The Browns are going to slow this game down if they can. That's just how they are built and how they'd prefer to play. Ultimately, the pace, scoring, and volume that this game sees will depend on the success of the Bengals, specifically their passing game. You can look at the splits I laid out in the Cincinnati section and, based on where you feel the Bengals' passing game fits in, that should give you a decent idea of how to approach this spot. If the Bengals are able to move the ball efficiently and vertically early in the game, they could build a quick lead and force the Browns to copy the Jets' attack from last week with quick spread passing. There is also a chance that the Browns lean that way from the start. When the 28th ranked offense in the league just dropped 34 points on the team you are about to play, you may want to take notice and attack similarly. In either regard, if the Browns' pass rate rises and the Bengals have early success throwing the ball, this game could greatly exceed expectations. The Jets, who have been one of the more plotting offenses this season, had a whopping 78 offensive plays last week against the Bengals. The Bills at the Jaguars kick off Sunday, November 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Buffalo is a pass-happy, cold-weather team that is walking into a pass-funnel situation in great weather. Jacksonville will have to play one of their better games of the year just to keep their heads above water. The Jags will likely struggle to run the ball and have trouble attacking downfield, making a pass-heavy game plan focused on the short areas and schemed routes their best plan of attack. How Buffalo Will Try to Win The Bills came out of their Week 7 bye a little sluggish offensively, only 10 points through three quarters, but turned it on late to coast to a double-digit victory over the Dolphins. They continue to have aggressive pass-happy play calling, and their offense is built around Josh Allen. In their Week 8 triumph over Miami, Allen threw 42 passes and ran the ball eight times, while Buffalo running backs only combined for 15 carries. That means that Allen accounted for a whopping 76% usage rate of plays where he was directly involved in the outcome. After watching Seattle turn to Geno Smith to attack Jacksonville through the air, it is highly likely that the Bills turn Allen loose against the 32nd-ranked DVOA pass defense. Jacksonville is actually a respectable 14th in DVOA against the run, meaning that it sets up a pass-funnel situation where the Bills will be incentivized to attack their opponent through the avenue that they already have a preference for. The Jaguars play man coverage on the majority of their defensive snaps. This sets up well for a Bills receiving core that is great at separating against man coverage in a scheme that spreads the field and gives them room to operate. The Bills struggled for the first two and a half quarters against a Dolphins team that also plays a high rate of man coverage, but Miami has much better personnel in their secondary, and the Bills found their groove late, scoring 23 points over their last four possessions, after only scoring three points over their first six possessions. We should expect the Bills to continue their aggressive approach from the outset of this matchup in Jacksonville. How Jacksonville will try to win The Jaguars are a mess. 
after wandering into a victory in London in Week 6 against a Dolphins team that keeps finding new ways to lose, the Jaguars returned home for a bye. They then entered Week 8 playing a team who was on a short week, struggling offensively, and without their franchise cornerstone QB. The way that game set up, a team with any semblance of organization, direction, and promise would have shown some signs of life and, at the very least, given Seattle a competitive game. Instead, we saw an offense that could barely move the ball, and an undisciplined team rack up 12 penalties. The defense was picked on through the air by Geno Smith, which isn't encouraging, but overall held their opponent to 229 total yards and gave up only 24 offensive points. The last Seattle touchdown was a fluky onside kick touchdown return, which should give most teams at least a chance to make a game of it. After that deflating loss, the Jaguars now return home with the daunting task of playing a Bills team that has been rolling outside of a fluky close loss to the Titans. Based on the evidence we have from Urban Meyer so far, the Jaguars are more likely to be focused on the best way to lose rather than finding a way to win. Buffalo ranks number one in the league in defensive DVOA, with top five ranks against both the run and the pass. James Robinson picked up a foot injury and his status is unclear, so they may be riding the back of 31-year-old running back Carlos Hyde as they attempt to shorten the game. We will often see rookie QBs look better after a bye week, but Trevor Lawrence struggled in Seattle. The environment in that road game likely played a factor, however, and there is a chance we could see him get into a rhythm with short area passing work if, when, the Jaguars realize they aren't going to be able to ride Hyde to sustain drives. They will need to give Lawrence high percentage throws on early downs to set up manageable second and third downs and keep the Buffalo pass rush from hitting him all game. Buffalo also boasts PFF's number one graded coverage unit, meaning that the Jaguars will want to scheme the ball out quickly as their receivers will likely struggle creating separation downfield. A similar scheme to what the Jets did with Mike White in Week 8 would be ideal and give the Jags a fighting chance of at least making this interesting. Likeliest Game Flow The Bills should be aggressive from the outset and are highly likely to be efficient and score points early and often. While Jacksonville will try to slow things down early, they will be forced from that plan in quick order as the Bills should have no trouble moving the ball and scoring points. Buffalo ranks third in situation-neutral pace, and Jacksonville is quietly slightly faster than the league average in that statistic. The Jaguars also rank number one in seconds per play when not adjusting for the situation, a ranking which is likely driven by how often they've been playing from behind. These statistics provide important context to consider here because it tells us that Buffalo is going to play fast and pass often from the outset, and Jacksonville is willing to really pump the tempo once they fall behind, which they should do in short order here. The combination of those things sets up a situation where we could see a lot of drives and very high play volume, which is very good for fantasy. What is truly mind-blowing about the Jaguars being ranked 32nd in pass defense DVOA is the fact that they've done so while playing a fairly easy schedule of opposing passing offenses. Buffalo's offensive success should be locked in as one of the top spots of the week, with a chance to go truly nuclear as they aren't the type to get a lead and be content handing it off and punting for a large portion of the game. Likewise, if Jacksonville is able to score a couple of times in the first or mount any signs of life early in the second half, it would push the Buffalo offense to be aggressive for an even greater portion of the game.
Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Texans at the Dolphins kick off Sunday, November 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.0. Game Overview by Pappy This game is a battle between two 1-7 teams. Expect sloppy football. The Dolphins have been choosing to throw, and their passing game has a cake matchup. Tua Tagovailoa, Devontae Parker, and Jalen Waddell are all priced below 6000 on DK. The Dolphins' defense might end up being the best play from this game. How Houston will try to win The 1-7 Texans come into this game riding a seven-game losing streak. Since beating the hapless Jaguars to open the season, the Texans have only played one competitive game. They managed to score 22 points last week in the final eight minutes of the fourth quarter against the Rams' backups after going down 38-0. The spread was 16.5 for those keeping track. If you take out those eight minutes versus backups, plus the Texans' mystery competitive game against the Pats, the Texans' last four losses have come at a score differential of 140 to 8. Yowzers. The Texans don't try to win as much as they try to survive. They've been smacked 40 and 0, 31 and 3, 31 and 5, and 38 and 0 until reserves entered the game in four of their last five games. David Coley looks lost as a coach, but in his defense, he doesn't have any talent on the roster. The Texans play slow, 27th situation neutral, even when they're losing, 20th when trailing, and they're always losing. The Texans are playing the brand of football that is designed to keep the score respectable rather than win, yet they still can't keep the score respectable. This week, they draw the Dolphins, who are 26th in DVOA against the pass and 16th in DVOA against the run, creating a mini run funnel. There is no reason to expect the Texans to be able to take advantage of the Dolphins' weaknesses. We can expect the Texans to try and throw, eventually falling behind and giving up. How Miami Will Try to Win A wise man once said, When you're playing the Texans, it's hard to lose. But when you're the Dolphins, it's hard to win. The 1-7 Dolphins are also riding a seven-game losing streak making this a matchup between the two worst records in the AFC. Unlike the Texans, the Dolphins are competitive, having lost close games to the Colts, Jags, and Falcons, and only getting pasted by the Bucks in their five most recent contests. Last week, the Dolphins lost a competitive game against the Bills, who scored a touchdown they didn't need as time expired to win by 15. The spread closed at 14.5, for those keeping track. This week, the Dolphins draw a Texans team with a similar record, but a much weaker roster. The Texans are 16th in DVOA against the run and 31st against the pass, presenting as a mini-pass funnel, but all paths are paths of least resistance against this talent-deficient defense. The Dolphins have been attacking through the air since Tua Tagovailoa returned, attempting 47, 40, and 39 passes in their last three games. There is no reason to think the Dolphins will lean away from how they've been playing, and it's reasonable to expect the Fish to throw to take a lead before cruising down the stretch to victory. Likeliest Game Flow 
This game has a reasonable total of 46.5, but only one side is expected to do much scoring, as the Texans can't seem to ever produce a team total that breaks 20 points. How bad are you to be a 7-point dog against a 1-7 team? Texans bad. The most likely game flow in this one is it follows a similar game script to all the Texans' lopsided games. The Dolphins should move the ball against the Texans with relative ease, and the Texans will try to come back before eventually giving up in the fourth quarter. The Raiders at the Giants kick off Sunday, November 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Pappy Both QBs in this game offer some appeal as salary saver options. Volume is likely to pile up on the ground for both sides. The wide receivers on both sides of this game are a mess. Devontae Booker played 93% of the snaps last week and is priced below 6000 on DK. How Las Vegas will try to win. The 5-2 Brutenless Raiders come into this game having won two straight and are sitting atop a division many predicted them to finish in last before the season started. Rather quietly, the Raiders have put up at least 26 points in every game since week two, outside of a total dud against the Bears. Derek Carr is also silently playing the best football of his career, ranking sixth overall in defense-adjusted yards above replacement, Dyar. Dyar is like war, wins above replacement in baseball, and compares a player against a league average replacement. Carr is sixth in the NFL in Dyer, behind only Stafford, Brady, Prescott, Murray, and Rodgers. The Raiders were adaptable under John Gruden, and that hasn't changed with his departure. This week they draw the Giants, who are stronger against the pass, 11th DVOA, than they are against the run, 21st in DVOA, which should tilt the Raiders toward testing the Giants on the ground to start this game. The Raiders play at an above-average speed, 12th in situation-neutral pace, but slow down when they're winning, 25th in pace when ahead, and there is a good chance they will be leading this game. The Raiders should remain balanced, attempting to gash the Giants' defense on the ground to set up shots through the air. How New York will try to win The 2-6 Giants are led by a coaching staff that is hoping to keep their jobs for the remainder of the season. The G-Men have certainly been bit by the injury bug, but they are also vastly underperforming the talent on their roster. The Giants try to play fast, 7th situation neutral pace, and maintain that pace when winning, but slow down, 18th in pace when leading, if they are up on the scoreboard. The Giants are rarely winning, which means they tend to play most of their games at an elevated pace. Unfortunately, running a bunch of plays in a Jason Garrett offense usually means you're running many plays that go nowhere. The Raiders are about the same at defending the pass, 19th in DVOA, as they are the run, 13th in DVOA, which doesn't create a clear path of least resistance. That's perfect for Garrett, as he wouldn't be looking for one anyway. Although the Raiders are slightly weaker against the pass, there is a good chance the Giants decide to run the ball. They limited Daniel Jones to 33 and 32 pass attempts the past two games, which resulted in a win and a competitive loss. Garrett is the type of coach that will keep trying what's been working regardless of matchup. That type of thinking will lead Garrett to limit Jones' attempts, even if the best way to win is by attacking the Raiders' weak secondary. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a middling 46.5 total that has started to creep up on some sites early in the week. 
this game is expected to be competitive, and both defenses can be exploited. The most likely game flow has both teams trying to lean on the run, the Raiders because it makes sense, and the Giants because it has been working recently, which will take some of the air out of this game. The offenses are the better side of the ball on both sides, so points should come, but a shootout isn't the most likely outcome. The Chargers at the Eagles kick off Sunday, November 7th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 50.0. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Clear avenues to attack for both teams, through the air for the Chargers and on the ground for the Eagles. Both teams are at a critical point in their seasons as they try to jockey for postseason position. Two rookie head coaches who have had very different perceptions from outsiders based on their first few weeks in charge. Staley is well-liked and heavily focused on analytics, while Sirianni seems to do or say something head-scratching every other week that causes people, inside and outside the organization, to question his abilities. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win Philadelphia has been a very inconsistent defensive team this year, but there has been some consistency in the situations they thrive in as opposed to those where they struggle. They have given up four or more touchdowns in half of their games against the Cowboys, Chiefs, Buccaneers, and Raiders, while holding their opponent to two or fewer touchdowns in the other half of their games against the Falcons, 49ers, Panthers, and Lions. This week, the Chargers come to town equipped with explosive offensive pieces and a young stud QB. While the Chargers have struggled to get going the last couple of weeks against the Patriots and Ravens, they should be able to get things moving again in this matchup. The Chargers throw the ball at the fourth-highest situation-neutral pass rate in the league through eight weeks, which is no surprise considering they have two high-profile wide receivers, an elite all-purpose running back, and an ascending star at QB. I would expect the Chargers to continue throwing at a high rate in this game and to continue playing at the second-highest situation-neutral pace in the league. 28.13 seconds per snap. The teams that have taken it to Philadelphia offensively have done a majority of their damage underneath and in the intermediate areas as the Eagles play a lot of deep zone and give a lot of too high safety looks in coverage. Tyreek Hill got loose on them in week four, but other than that, the damage they give up is mostly from accurate quarterbacks picking them apart. Derek Carr and Tom Brady had combined for a 65-for-76 passing line, an insane 85.5% completion rate, in the two weeks prior to the Eagles' Week 8 throttling of the Lions. Carr and Brady also combined for 8.2 yards per passing attempt, so it isn't like the Eagles were just giving up short dump-offs that inflated the completion percentage. Eckler should see something in the range of 12-15 to 15 carries, with the Chargers spelling him for another 5-8 to eight carries from his backups but this game will be primarily attacked through the air by Los Angeles. Keenan Allen is so good at finding openings underneath against these types of teams, and Mike Williams has settled into his ex-receiver role this year that makes him more than a deep threat. Add Eckler's usage and explosiveness in the passing game and some athletic tight ends to the mix, and Herbert should be dealing. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win the Eagles had their best all-around game of the year in Week 8 as they took it to the Lions and took some heat off QB Jalen Hurts and head coach Nick Sirianni. Now they return home to the link to try to prove to the Philly faithful that it wasn't just a fluke. With the NFL moving to a 17-game season and now having seven playoff spots in each conference, the Eagles are still very much alive to make the playoffs at 3-5 and five despite their rocky, to say the least, first half of the season. 
The Eagles are only a game behind the current seven seed, the Panthers, who they also hold a tiebreaker over. The Eagles also get to play the Giants and Washington two times each, so if they can get out of here with a win, they could be in great position to make a run down the stretch. The Eagles should have a clear plan of how they should attack this matchup. After passing at a top 10 rate through the first six weeks of the season, the Eagles have altered direction significantly the last two weeks, including an insane 46 rushing attempts to only 16 pass attempts in week eight. While a lot of that was driven by game script last week, the Eagles will no doubt recognize they played their best game of the season when they leaned on the run and they are facing the Chargers' league-worst run defense. The Eagles will likely also look to use Jalen Hurts on designed runs as the Chargers struggled to contain Lamar Jackson a couple of weeks ago and are built to deter deep passing and force teams to the ground. The Eagles' offensive struggles this year have almost all been due to putting too much on Hurts' plate in the passing game and forcing him to do things he isn't as comfortable with. In this spot, the Eagles should be able to move the ball well on the ground and let Hurts find short area openings in the passing game from favorable down and distance situations. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a lot of potential for explosiveness and offensive production. Both offenses have playmakers and a clear path to attack that, in theory, will offer very little resistance. As the highest game total on the main slate and basically being a pick'em, this game has a lot of Week 8 Titans vs. Colts vibes to it. Both offenses operate at a top-five situation neutral pace, so even if the Eagles turn run heavy, there should be enough plays to go around. The game projects to stay close, which would be good for a potential back-and-forth shootout. If it doesn't stay close, however, either scenario would also provide a lot of fantasy appeal. If the Chargers pull ahead, it would just turn the Eagles to a more aggressive approach while the Chargers would still lean on the pass as the easiest way to move the ball and sustain drives. Also, Brandon Staley is analytically minded and not the type of coach who is likely to just sit on a lead early. If the Eagles jump out to a lead, the Chargers would likely abandon the run almost entirely and turn their tempo up to even higher levels. Of the two offenses, the Eagles have the higher likelihood of laying an egg, which means that in a scenario where they score points early, it raises the floor of the entire game as it eliminates a complete dud that drags down the Chargers scenario. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Packers at the Chiefs kick off Sunday, November 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.0. Game Overview by Hilo One of the more wild line swings you'll ever see first due to recency bias surrounding the Chiefs, move from Kansas City, negative 2.5 to a pick'em, and then due to the absence of Aaron Rodgers, move from a pick'em to Chiefs, negative 6.5. 28th and 32nd ranked defenses in drive success rate allowed against the number one and number three offenses in time of possession per drive. This game holds two potential outcomes with respect to likeliest game environment that carry equal chances of transpiring, Chiefs stomping, and an uglier, grinded-out style of game. Yet the field is likely to focus only on Chief onslaughts. How Green Bay Will Try to Win As we were reminded of last week, head coach Matt LaFleur will do whatever he can to put his team in the best position for a win. The Packers went into Arizona on a short week and beat the Cardinals without their top three wide receivers. So, 
How did they approach that game? They utilized A.J. Dillon more as a rusher so they could work their most dynamic playmaker into the pass game more in Aaron Jones, who saw 11 targets on 37 Aaron Rodgers' pass attempts. Now, presented with the challenge of taking on the Chiefs without his Hall of Fame quarterback and starting tight end, Robert Tanyan was lost for the season with an ACL tear. The good news is Jordan Love should have all of Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Alan Lazard back from either the COVID list or IR. Now the challenge lies with trying to figure out how LaFleur thinks he can give his team the best chance to come away with a second road victory in a row as heavy underdogs. The clearest avenue for the Packers to lean this week is once again around the run game, 34 rush attempts to 37 pass attempts in Week 8. That should also lead to inflated 12 personnel rates as they look to generate additional push inside, 31% on the season. We'll cover what this means as far as expected snap rates amongst pass catchers here in a little bit. Last week, Aaron Jones saw 15 rush attempts and 11 targets on a 66% snap rate, while A.J. Dillon saw 16 rush attempts and no targets on 40% of the offensive snaps. This gives us a good idea of what to expect this week for as long as the game remains within reason on the scoreboard. We also have to consider the extremely slow-paced lean of this offense overall and the low number of offensive plays per game they have run to this point, only 61.1 plays per game, which ranks 25th in the league. Although I expect A.J. Dillon to once again be utilized heavily in the game plan, I don't expect Aaron Jones to see the ridiculous 11 targets he did a week ago with the receiving core largely returning to health. The matchup on the ground yields an above-average 4.51 net-adjusted line yards metric and should be considered the primary means of attack for a Packers team once again hamstrung by COVID and injury. Now for the interesting part. With Love in at quarterback, the wide receivers returning to health, and the season-ending injury to Robert Tanyan, we have a lot of moving pieces with respect to expected snap rates and offensive involvement from this Packers offense. We touched on the likeliest range for the running backs above but the pass catchers present an entirely new puzzle to try and figure out. Because we should expect the Packers to bias heavily towards a slow pace of play and rush-heavy involvement, we can all but assume they will bias their offensive personnel alignments and individual snap rates toward boosting the run game. I expect elevated 12 personnel alignments with blocking tight end Mercedes Lewis and second-year pro Josiah Deguara splitting snaps, and an elevated snap rate from the Packers' best run-blocking wide receiver in Alan Lazard. Devontae Adams should return to his approximately 90% snap rate role, while Randall Cobb and Marquez Valdez-Scantling see the biggest hit to their expected snap rates. Because the Packers typically run under 65 offensive plays per game, six of eight weeks below that mark, we should expect Jordan Love to attempt 25 to 28 passes in most game environments. That is likeliest to lead to 10 to 12 targets for Devontae Adams, 4 to 6 for Aaron Jones, and 10 to 15 targets to be split primarily amongst Lazard, MVS, Cobb, and Duguara. How Kansas City will try to win Running back Clyde Edwards-Solaire was lost midway through the Chiefs' Week 5 game. Since that time, the Chiefs ranked third in the NFL in situation-neutral pass rate at 69%, throwing the ball in unreal 154 times over just three and a half games. 130 pass attempts against the Giants, Titans, and football team. For one reason or the other, it seems Mahomes has struggled this year dissecting 3-4 base cover 2 defensive schemes, schemes that hold two high safeties. That is exactly the defensive scheme the Packers will utilize here. 
While it appeared as if the Chiefs shifted to a heavier emphasis on the run game in their Week 8 Monday Night Football victory over the Giants, they still passed the ball 48 times to only 24 running back carries. Derek Gore seemingly stole the show, but he played only 16 offensive snaps, touching the football 11 times and rushing for a score. There is nothing that would indicate the Chiefs adapting a more run-heavy approach here, even in a matchup that leans run-funnel. Darrell Williams still leads this backfield by a significant margin last week, playing 64% of the offensive snaps and 19 running back opportunities, 13 rushes, and 6 targets. I expect that to largely remain steady moving forward, as D. Will's snap rates have remained consistent in each week that CEH has missed, 72%, 64%, 64%. Derek Gore's snaps came at the expense of Jarek McKinnon last week, which again should be the case this week. Expect likely a scenario to put D. Will in the 15-20 to 20 running back opportunity range, with Gore checking in at 10-12 to 12, and McKinnon left fighting for the scraps in the 6-8 to 8 range. The matchup on the ground yields a borderline elite 4.635 net adjusted line yards metric, but we're at the mercy of Andy Reid and his sporadic play-calling tendencies this season if focused on the run game from the Chiefs. The most backable portion of this offense over the previous five games has been Tyreek Hill, who has out-targeted Travis Kelsey 64-46 over that time. The cornerback trio of Eric Stokes, Russell Douglas, and Chandon Sullivan has played well over their three games worth playing together, while safeties Darnell Savage and Adrian Amos form one of the better safety duos in the league. With Jair Alexander out for the season, expect the Packers' defense to run more cover-two zone defensive schemes than they did over the first portion of the season. All of that was to highlight the relative difficulty of the matchup, contrary to how the field is likely to view this spot. Travis Kelsey is the only other player on this offense that sees the field at a near-every-down clip, while all of Mercole Hardman, Byron Pringle, Demarcus Robinson, and even Josh Gordon have seen a significant share of the offensive snaps recently. Likeliest scenarios keeps Hill in his double-digit target role, with Kelsey likely landing in the 8-10 to 10 target range, and a wide range of potential outcomes as far as the target share goes for the remaining pass catchers. Finally, while we don't expect the Chiefs to completely fail here, we should expect them to land below their season average of 68.9 offensive plays run from scrimmage. Likeliest Game Flow it is likeliest we see the Packers once again attempt to slow the game down and keep the game within striking distance going into the fourth quarter, while the Chiefs are looking for a true statement win after leaving Week 8 ranked third in the AFC West with a 4-4 record. Although the matchup clearly tilts toward the run for the Chiefs, I don't think we can immediately assume that will be the case here. I've spoken to the weird dynamic of this offense this season, with particular emphasis on Andy Reid's play calling and situational design of the offense. Something is just missing for this team. Pair that with the struggles of Patrick Mahomes against 3-4 and four base cover 2 this season, and we get a game environment that has a greater than perception chance of devolving into an ugly, missed opportunities type of game. To put that another way, there is a reason why the line on this game moved to only 6.5 points as opposed to something like 10.5 or 13.5. Initial public perception and reaction was that the Chiefs will just waltz toward an easy victory here, which is a mistake in my opinion. That being the case, we're likely to see lopsided ownership of this game as the field adapts more certainty than I think is warranted from this game. The Cardinals at the 49ers Kickoff Sunday, November 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 46. Game Overview by Hilo
AJ Green was placed on the COVID list on Wednesday and is highly likely to miss this contest, while quarterback Kyler Murray has yet to practice this week following his late-game ankle injury last Thursday. We should find out more regarding his status on Friday. Antoine Wesley is the best comparable wide receiver to fill in for A.J. Green. At 6'5", expect him to fill the perimeter role opposite DeAndre Hopkins. No single player would be expected to see a significant boost to volume with the almost one-for-one direct substitution from Green to Wesley. Two of the top six offenses in situation-neutral rush rates this season. How Arizona will try to win. The glaring starting point for this discussion surrounding the Cardinals are the likely absence of A.J. Green, COVID, and possible absence of Kyler Murray, ankle. Murray has yet to practice this week after injuring his ankle late in last Thursday's matchup with the Packers. We'll need further clarification from the Cardinals' Friday practice report before we can make any definitive plans, but it currently appears like Colt McCoy could be the starting quarterback for the Cardinals this week. The Cardinals are a fast-paced, ninth-ranked situation-neutral pace of play, fourth-highest in the first half, 32nd in the second half, notable for sure. High rush rate team, 47% situation-neutral rush rate on the season. We think of this offense as being a blisteringly fast-paced team, when the reality is they have slowed the game down significantly in the second half of games this season. If you take away the rushing potential from Kyler Murray, should he miss, we might see a slight hit taken to the hefty 4.62 yards per rush attempt their running backs have enjoyed this season. Yes, the Cardinals are a spread offense that looks to incorporate downfield passing with a relentless rush game and high pace of play in the second half. That said, this offense has developed into a spread offense in more ways than just one. As all of Kyler Murray, Chase Edmonds, James Conner, DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, when active, Christian Kirk, Rondale Moore, and now Zach Ertz are on hand to split snaps and production. We've also seen a decrease to the normally high rushing rates of Kyler Murray this season, which has led to the optimal way of playing him, shifting to a pairing instead of as a naked one-off, which we've dissected completely this season. Okay, so what happens if Green and Kyler miss? What we're likeliest to see is a heavy emphasis on the run game through Edmonds and Connor, with Antoine Wesley almost directly filling in for Green on the perimeter opposite Nook. I wouldn't expect a massive bump to the expectation for the remaining regular starters as far as volume goes, and we have to think the efficiency of the offense overall suffers a great deal with McCoy at quarterback. As for the matchup on the ground, the Cardinals are subject to a below-average 3.89 net-adjusted line yards metric against a San Francisco defense built to stop the run first. We uncovered most of what to expect from the Cardinals through the air above, but the offense would gain a significant boost overall if Kyler can make his way back from that ankle injury. If he can't, expect a lower drive success rate than we're used to seeing from this offense, lowering the appeal of the game environment as a whole. Also, since we can't confidently project any one player to see additional volume with the almost one-for-one swap from Green to Wesley, the pass catchers should remain low-expected volume, bet on efficiency pieces. But Hilo, how do you so confidently expect Wesley to directly fill in for Green? Good question. The only other wide receivers on the roster, Andy Isabella and Josh Doxson, profile differently than Wesley, who is the closest match to what A.J. Green provides at this point in his career. How San Francisco Will Try to Win the return of Jamichael Hasty has meant at least some semblance of running back work through the air, which makes this offense a little less one-dimensional. 
For example, Hasty has seen 14 targets in the four games in which he played meaningful snaps this season, 30% or more, compared to four total targets over five healthy games for Elijah Mitchell. Mitchell continues to be a 60-65% to snap rate running back, but should be thought of as a strict yardage and touchdown back in a difficult on-paper matchup. The absence of George Kittle and his run-blocking ability is a big deal for this Niners offense, considering how they would like to operate, so keep an eye on his status as the week progresses. He was activated off the IR on Wednesday, which opened his 21-day practice window. Jimmy Garoppolo has surpassed 30 pass attempts only once across his six games played this year, further indicating how this offense would like to operate. The matchup on the ground yields a slightly above average 4.41 net adjusted line yards metric and should be the likeliest way for the Niners to move the ball. That said, the threat of splash plays against the Cardinals is muted by a defense built to keep the game in front of them, which is such a massive part of how the 49ers operate on offense. Expect Elijah Mitchell to land in his standard range of 18 to 20 running back opportunities, almost all of which should be carries. Jamichael Hasty has returned to siphon 8 to 10 running back opportunities per game with 4 to 6 expected targets. Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and Mohamed Sanu continue to operate as the primary pass catchers in this offense, with only Debo seeing a reliable weekly workload, 8 to 13 targets in every game this season. Ayuk has played between 67% and 88% of the offensive snaps for five weeks now, but the production has yet to follow. Interestingly enough, it has been Charlie Werner who has emerged as the de facto lead tight end in the absence of George Kittle, primarily for his run-blocking chops. Only five targets on the season. Arizona allows the fourth lowest yards per completion in the league at only 9.2. Furthermore, they have allowed the second-fewest yards after the catch this season, denting the upside of Debo and Ayuk. Likeliest Game Flow When we consider the combinatorial heavy rush rates from each team, the injuries and COVID issues for the Cardinals, and the likely continued absence of George Kittle from the 49ers, we're left with a likeliest scenario of a grinded-out, slugfest-style game environment here. Neither team is likely to separate substantially from the other, with the greatest chance of that occurring actually coming from the Cardinals' defense. If they are able to create consistent short fields for their offense, or even score a defensive touchdown, it would force the Niners into aggression earlier than they would otherwise like. The only other path I see to this game truly opening up is a broken play from Elijah Mitchell or Debo Samuel, which carries an even lower percentage chance of happening here. When the best chance of the game opening up is from the defensive production, it might be time to call this one a low upside game environment. Both offenses should be expected to largely struggle to sustain drives with a matchup between Colt McCoy and Jimmy Garoppolo on deck, meaning muted overall offensive production from both teams and low expected ceilings from all skill position players. 